Amen. If you have your Bibles on you this morning, please turn to John chapter 16. Uh, we're going to look at verses 5 through 12. And the title of the message is The Ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, it is Mother's Day, and you might be saying, well, what does this have to do with Mother's Day? It has everything to do with being a good mother, being a good Christian, being a good follower of Christ. Is that our effectiveness in serving the Lord Jesus Christ has everything to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you are honest with me this morning, you will realize that the Holy Spirit is one person in the Godhead that many people don't address. We usually talk about the Father, we talk a lot about the Son, but we don't talk about the significance of the Holy Spirit. But what we need to understand is without the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives, first of all, we cannot understand what salvation is. We cannot come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we cannot be empowered to do the work that God has called us to do. So it's very important that we are obedient and we submit ourselves to the working and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we've been studying the Gospel of John, especially John chapter 15, towards the end of John chapter 15, beginning in uh, chapter 16, Jesus has absolutely dropped the bomb on his disciples. And he has told them this, you will bear fruit for me. Uh, you will make sure that if you're connected to the vine, that it's going to be evident in your life that you are a follower of Christ. He told them that if you're connected to the vine, you're going to have love and joy in your heart. It's going to be evident in your ministry and the people that are around you. And then he tells them this, if you are connected to the vine, if you're following Christ, if you're living in obedience to his teachings, Jesus says, you will experience persecution. You will be hated by the world. The world will not like you because you follow Jesus Christ. Jesus is indicating to his disciples that there is a cost to following Jesus. And then Jesus also tells them, guess what, I want you to understand that these things are going to happen to you, so do not be surprised. Do not be surprised that in the very near future, you will suffer persecution. And I finished last week's message talking about what happened to the disciples at the end of their life. So a question that we are faced with, the disciples were faced with this as well. How can we as Christians, how can we as disciples and followers of Christ, endure and persevere till the end. How can we do it? How are the disciples supposed to have this information, knowing that they would be hated by the world, that they would be persecuted? How are they supposed to carry out the great commission that Jesus had told them about? It's by the leading and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You can tell a difference when you do something in your own power and when you do something through the power of the Holy Spirit. How often in your life have you done this? Have you tried to open doors and you have tried with all of your strength, with all of your power, with all of your might, and all you do is you end up banging your head against the wall saying, when are these doors going to open for me? And then all of a sudden, when you are submitting yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit, you give God complete control, all of a sudden something opens for you and you say to God, where, where did that come from? I was not expecting this. It is the difference between doing something in your own power and doing something in the power of the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus, in John chapter 16, in these verses, before he begins to talk to them about what the Holy Spirit would do for them, what Jesus does is he does a heart check. He examines their hearts and he says, you know what, I'm, I'm gauging something uh, about your spirit. If you look in verse 5, look at what he says to them. He says, now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow 
has filled your heart. Well, what is Jesus trying to say to them? Look, look, he's exposing their hearts. He's looking at the emotion that they're feeling. For instance, there's a couple other passages where Jesus picked up on this as well. Look at John 13, 36. Because Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. John 14, 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? The disciples were confused and they weren't necessarily concerned about what would happen to Jesus. They were concerned about what was going to happen to them. They were expressing concern for themselves and not necessarily for Jesus. I want you to think about this. When you are going through stuff in your life, what do you care about the most? You care the most about yourself, right? You say to God, God, when are you going to fix this? What are you going to do for me? When are these trials going to end? When is this going to be alleviated in my life? We always think about ourselves, and we don't think about what God is going to do in and through us when we are going through difficulty. It is the same thing that the disciples are doing. The disciples are thinking only about themselves because Jesus is leaving. Here is a man that has protected them. Here is a man that has guided them, who has loved them, who has discipled them. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, I have to go. And they say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Who's going to take care of me? I have a couple different quotes here. First from John MacArthur, he says this. He says, their thoughts were not centered on what this moment meant for Jesus, but only what it meant for them. But instead of being consumed with anxiety, they should have been filled with joy to know that Jesus' earthly mission was almost over and his return to heavenly glory near. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, They were thinking more of their loss by his going away from them than of his gain in going back to his father. If they had thought of the glory into which he was soon to enter, they would have ceased to sorrow and would have rejoiced with exceeding joy. But they seem to have loved themselves better than they loved their Lord. Hence his absence, which ought to have given them many reasons for rejoicing, became to them a cause of grief. Here's what it's trying to show in John chapter 16, verse 5. Here's what these quotes are saying. There is a view that you can have when you are up close to the situation, and there is a view that you can have from 30,000 feet. Let me share with you an illustration as to what I'm talking about. Here's a picture here. We, we talked a little bit about this at our guys' Bible study. This is called a sexy fly, okay? Now, if you were to walk into a dark room and this confronted you, how many of you would be terrified? Raise your hand. Be honest, okay? There's many of you that would be terrified. Why? Because look at this creature. Look, look at those, whatever that is, you know? Uh, that, that looks scary. That looks like it's poisonous. But I want you to look at the next picture. That's how big that fly actually is. That, that's a zoomed out picture, 8 to 17 millimeters. Now here's the problem is that, go back to that previous picture, whenever we're looking at our circumstance, we're, go back to the former picture, when you're looking at our circumstance, we're always looking at this picture. We're looking at the close-up view, we're always in it, it's, it's before us, and we don't think about anything else, but when you go back and zoom back to God's view and you take a look at that picture, you look at your circumstance and you think to yourself, well, maybe that wasn't so bad. Here's what the disciples forgot to look at. They were consumed with the fact that Jesus was going to be leaving, He was going to leave them by themselves, and yet they forgot to 
see the fact that if Jesus did not go, the Holy Spirit could not come. The Holy Spirit could not indwell them. The Holy Spirit could not empower them to carry out the gospel all around the world. There are too many people that are focused on the close-up view of their circumstance, and they miss out on the context of what God is trying to do in their lives. Every single one of us is guilty of that. Sometimes you need to take a step back from what you're going through and ask God this question, Lord, what is the grand picture of what you're trying to do here? What are you trying to teach me? What is the lesson that I am missing? Because my head is constantly in the circumstance and God is saying, step back. Look at the 30,000 foot view. It is what the disciples fail to look at. Look at verse 7. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Notice what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is shifting their focus from a temporal perspective to an eternal perspective. Jesus is saying, look, I understand your hearts. I understand that you're scared, you're worried, but you have to stop thinking about the temporary and start thinking about the eternal. A couple things to mention here is that Jesus is going away would bring about something greater in purpose in the lives of the disciples. There was going to be a greater purpose in the lives of the disciples. Number two is that Jesus promised his disciples that when the Holy Spirit came, he would do something for them. We looked at this in, in previous uh, chapters and verses in the Bible, but look at a couple different things that there would be an advantage for the disciples. Number one is this, is that the Holy Spirit would give them eternal life. The Holy Spirit would give them eternal life. Look at John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. It says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom they believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not given, uh, given yet, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when you are understanding what God is doing through the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit, realize that it is the Holy Spirit that is going to con convict someone and bring them to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that can break the hardest of hearts and make them soft so that they can receive the truth of God. There are many people in your life that are hard-hearted, right? You know them all over the place. You know them in your schools. You know them in your family. And you are persevering and trying to share the gospel with them. You're being faithful and you're just saying to yourself, when is this going to open up? I want to tell you, you simply need to be faithful in loving them and presenting the truth and let the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. Why, why do we have that perspective? Again, because we're so involved in it. We need to step back and say, Lord, you need to do something about this. This is completely out of my hands. Jesus tells them that they would receive eternal life. Number two, the Holy Spirit would dwell in them. The Holy Spirit would dwell in them. John chapter 14, Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper. Look at what He does. That He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and, you will, and He will be in you. 
Now think about this for a second here. Jesus is talking to Jewish men here. The Jews were consumed with the Old Testament aspect of temples and sacrifices. In the Jewish mind, this is where God dwelt. He dwelt in the temple. And if you were to walk into ancient Israel, if you were to look at Solomon's temple, or any of the temples in the Old Testament or ancient times, you would be mesmerized at the beauty of these temples. The fact that God would give such intricate and accurate details in terms of how it was to be built, you would look at it and say, yes, this is something that God would dwell in. But then when you come into the new covenant, we are told that we have, as believers, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. It's amazing to me when we look at the people that God says, we we look at and we say, well, how in the world did God do that? How does God use that person? How does God look? Because we're so focused on the outside. We're focused on looks. We're focused on abilities and talents. But God chooses to reside within human beings who have trusted in His Son. Here's something significant that you need to realize and remember. Is that if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, here's what's going to happen. You are going to have a different relationship with sin. If the Holy Spirit is residing within you, you are going to have a different relationship with sin. Before knowing Christ, guess what? You, you love sin. You indulged in it. You you satisfied and gratified the desires of your flesh. But after you trusted Christ, after He showed you what the truth is, after repentance was brought about in your heart, you keep fighting against sin. You have a different relationship with it. Here's what I want you to remember as a believer. You must keep fighting sin, otherwise it will ruin you. You must keep fighting sin, otherwise it will ruin you. Do you realize that battles and temptations don't stop after you become a Christian? I think sometimes we have, we have put out this view that says, Jesus comes, He transforms your heart, and it's just rosy until He calls you home. But what I've realized is that when I trust Christ as my Savior, battles are there, temptations are there, trials are there, trying to take me away from my relationship with Christ. And if I don't focus, if I'm not concentrating on this fact that the Holy Spirit resides within me and need to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit, if I completely ignore it, sin is going to take a foothold in my life. The Holy Spirit gives eternal life. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. The Holy Spirit also teaches us. Look at John 14, 26. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Look at what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit teaches us. There's a lot of Christians that are not teachable. Amen? There's just a lot of Christians that you just cannot teach a thing because they know everything. You go up to them and you say, you know what, hey, you really need to work on this. Well, who are you to tell me that? I've been going to church for this many amount of years, and I've read through the Bible 15 times. How dare you tell me this? It simply shows that we have a prideful attitude, but the Holy Spirit's job is to teach us how to be obedient to God. 
The Holy Spirit residing within our lives illuminates, it shows us the Word of God, and it shows us what our hearts are like, and it does everything it can to align our will with the will of God. Now, question for you, how can I know what the Holy Spirit is expecting of me? How can I know that I am teachable? How am I even supposed to grow in my walk with God? The answer is simple. It's by abiding by the Word of God. You know, I'd be tempted to take a survey. If you are not able to write your name down, simply you are saying, if I were to ask you, how many times a week do you read your Bible? I wonder what the answer would be like in the room. I wonder what the answer would be like in churches all across America. How often do people truly study and adhere to the Word of God? If we want to know what the Holy Spirit is teaching us and how the Holy Spirit is guiding us and how we can be obedient to God, we cannot do it by bypassing the Word of God. The Word of God has been given to us, so when we are reading it, the Word of God is exposing our hearts. It's showing us where we need to be aligned with the Word and the will of God and how we can live to fulfill God's purposes in our life. If you want to grow in your walk with God, you cannot bypass this. And if you are bypassing this, I can immediately tell you where you are in your walk with God. The Holy Spirit will teach you how to be obedient to God. Not just that, but the Holy Spirit also empowers us to do the work of gospel ministry. Look at John 15. It says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you, the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I don't know if you've ever taken time to read any stories about missionaries in church history. I know I've taken time to read about quite a few of them, and I look at them throughout church history, not just the apostles, but I look at many that went to third world countries, destitute nations, nations torn apart by war and poverty, and I look at all the things that they accomplished for the kingdom and purpose of God, and I often ask these questions. I said, well, how in the world did they even put together things to go to such a place? How were they able to learn such a complex language? How did their family survive in such atrocious conditions? You know what I'm doing? I'm thinking about their condition and their calling based on my finite understanding. But when you think about the power of God through the work of His Spirit empowering someone, there is no limit to what God can do in your life. Do you realize who the biggest limitation is in your life in, in doing the work of gospel ministry? It's you. We, we can blame other people. We can say, well, I'm the way I am in, in my walk with God because this person has been this to me, this person has done this to me, and this has happened to me. But the biggest reason that we are not empowered in doing God's work is because we have excuse after excuse for why we cannot be obedient to God. If you want to be empowered to do the work of God, it's only going to happen through the power of the Spirit. You try to do it on your own flesh, uh, the doors are just not going to open, but you submit yourself to the Spirit of God, and you might be amazed what God can do through you. Another question we need to ask when we look at Jesus' statement in verse 7, why did the Holy Spirit come after Jesus ascended to the Father? Well, why did the Holy Spirit come at that time? A couple different things. Number one, 
is to reveal the finished work of Jesus' ministry through his crucifixion and resurrection. Those things had to take place first. Prophecy had to be fulfilled in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. But number two is the continued work of Jesus' ministry through his disciples and those who would put their faith in Christ. The work of Jesus never stopped after he ascended to the Father. It would be carried out through his disciples. It would be carried out to those who would believe in Jesus. Look at Acts 2.33. It says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. I want you to think about something which is absolutely profound. Do you realize that you are carrying out, you're an extension of Jesus' ministry? Have you ever thought about that? Your life as a believer is an extension of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus ascended into heaven, his work did not stop. Guess what he did? He, he had his 12 disciples. They would be empowered through the work of the Spirit to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. It is the same way in your life. Jesus' ministry continues to go forth through your life and my life. So the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Is my life showing that Jesus' ministry is continuing? Is Jesus' life truly evident in my life? Am I truly carrying out the Great Commission the way that God wants me to carry it out? It's something that we need to evaluate our hearts with. If I am an extension of the ministry of Christ, where is the proof that I'm involved in the work of God? Look at verse 8. It says, And when He has come, the Holy Spirit... Look at what he will do. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness. Let's take a look at the word convict. It's an important word to understand in this context. Number one, it's a word that can be used in a judicial sense when convicting a criminal of wrongdoing. But number two, in this context, it refers to understanding the seriousness of sin and the need of salvation. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is going to come and He is going to convict sinful hearts of their sin. He's going to convict them of righteousness and of judgment. William Barclay says this, It is used for the cross-examination of a witness or a man on trial or an opponent in an argument. It always has this idea of cross-examining a man until he sees and admits his errors or acknowledges the force of some argument which he had not yet seen. It is, for instance, sometimes used by the Greeks for the action of conscience on a man's mind and heart. Clearly, such cross-examination can do two things. It can convict a man of the crime he has committed or the wrong that he has done. Or it can convince a man of the weakness of his own case and the strength of the case which he has opposed. In this passage, we need both meanings, both convict and convince. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts our hearts of sin and it convinces us the need to follow and be obedient in the footsteps of Christ. So what is the implication for my life? We simply need to learn to be faithful in accurately presenting the Word of God to people and let the Holy Spirit change people's hearts. 
What is the Holy Spirit going to convict of? Let's look at the first thing. It's going to convict of sin. Sin. It refers to the ultimate sin of rejecting Jesus' offer of salvation. Look at John 5.40. Jesus tells them, But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. The Holy Spirit confronts the lost regarding their sin. How often do you come across people that will tell you, you know what, I don't believe that there is a God. I don't believe that God exists. No, I'm not, I, don't, I don't believe I'm doing anything wrong. You know what the Bible says? They're actually liars. Read Romans chapter 1. It says that God has shown humanity, even in His creation, that there is a God that exists. He says there is no excuse for man for rejecting the truth of the fact that God exists and that His Word is true. Man is without excuse. It does not really matter what people have to say regarding their hearts because God has given us the final verdict. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. It convinces us of our need for salvation. Number two, the Holy Spirit convicts of righteousness. What does that mean? It is seeing God's holiness in light of our sinful works. Look at John 5, 48. Jesus says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know what the Holy Spirit does? It shows human beings that their works are simply not good enough to get them eternal life. One of the challenges that you and I face when we're trying to share Jesus with people is that people say, well, I'm already a good person. I take care of my family. I'm a moral person. I do all these things. Look at them. But here's what you need to remind them. When they stack up their works to what Jesus did on the cross for them and that he rose again from the dead and that he lived a perfect life, there really is no comparison. We are confronted by who God is. He convicts us by righteousness and shows us that our hearts simply will never be able to do enough in order to please God. It is only through faith in the Son of God. Last thing that the Holy Spirit does, and this is where many people leave out this aspect, it convicts of judgment. Look at John 3.18. It says that Jesus says, He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There is a judgment that takes place when we reject the revelation of God. Here's another quote. It says this, The Holy Spirit convinces men of judgment. It says, On the cross, evil stands condemned and defeated. What makes a man feel certain that judgment lies ahead? It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is He who gives us the inner and unshakable conviction that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. There remains one thing which at the moment John does not go on to mention. When we are convicted of our own sin, when we are convinced of Christ's righteousness, when we are convinced of judgment to come, what gives us the certainty that in the cross of Christ is our salvation and that which Christ we are forgiven and saved from judgment? This too is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is He who convinces us and makes us sure that in this crucified figure we can find our Savior and our Lord. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and convinces us of our Savior. Now there's many people that say, well, I don't feel any conviction about my sin. I got an answer for you. Maybe you don't really have the Holy Spirit. 
You cannot have the Spirit of God residing within you and have any type of remorse over sin. It's going to be there. You're going to repent of it. You're going to make sure that when you sin, you know that the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you of your sin. If you have no conviction ever, guess what? You need to examine whether or not you're truly in the faith. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us, to convince us, to always be aligned with the will and purposes of God. Jesus continues here. He says this, Because I go to my Father and you see me no more of judgment. Look at the words I go. He's, he's withdrawing from them, from their sight and fellowship on earth. But there's something more important that is laid out in this verse. Jesus says, I go to my Father. I go to my Father. The Father's acceptance of Christ into heaven is evidence of His righteousness. Christ is going and He's going to be exalted. And the Bible is telling us that it is a testament of God's favor on the Son, that He goes and sits at the right hand of the Father. The Father has accepted the finished work of Jesus on earth, and now He is forever our mediator. One day going to come and get us back. Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11. It says, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, i got news for you. There are people in your life that refuse to bow the knee to Jesus right now. I'm telling you, one day in the future they're not going to have an option. Well, when they see this Savior, when they see the one who they have rejected, when they see Him, coming in all of His glory and might. We as Christians, we will, we will be celebrating at such a sight because our faith has been made sight. We will look at Him who is going to take us into eternal life forever. But those who have rejected Him, it will be a sight of dread. And they will fall down on their knees and worship Him. Jesus one day will receive the praise of all people of all time once and for all. Because the Father has exalted Jesus Christ and seated Him at His right hand. Jesus says this. He says, because the ruler of this world is judged. Who is this ruler that Jesus is talking about? He's talking about Satan. We know that Satan was cast down from heaven with the, a third of the angels who rebelled against God. But something we need to remember about Satan is that he was defeated at the cross. He was defeated at the cross, Hebrews 2.14. The author says that through his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John 3, 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You and I need to understand that Satan is a defeated foe. He is defeated. His time to do more work of destruction is very limited from God's perspective, he is a defeated foe. But number two, until Satan's final defeat, he will try to sway the masses away from the saving gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says this, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. 
1 Peter 5.8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I've got to ask you this honest question. Whenever you are walking around the mall, or when you're out at some festival or something like that, you'll always see images of Satan as a friendly person, right? People are celebrating it. People are having a good time around this aspect of this figure, this Satan, satanic figure. But what they don't understand is that this person that they are praising and celebrating, the Bible clearly tells us in the book of Revelation that he's doomed. That there is a final destiny for him. It is not heaven, it is not eternal life, it is eternal punishment. And we look at television and then they show Satan as some cartoon character and some humorous figure. What we need to understand is that he is someone who is a foe of God. He is a foe of those who follow Jesus Christ. But he's also defeated. He was defeated at the cross. But you look at this world today. You cannot tell me that Satan is not active in this world today. Have you seen what has been happening in terms of morality and understanding of truth in this world? Have you been watching what has been happening in America? You know, a lot of people were kind of like, oh yes, the elections, you know, we've got someone who can give, you know, great conservative people in the Supreme Court. Folks, the Supreme Court is not going to take care of your eternal life problem. It is only going to be Jesus that's going to do it for you. When you look at the trajectory of what's happening, folks, do you understand that 4%, think about this number for a second, 4% of millennials have a proper biblical worldview. 4%. And we sit in our houses, in our sheltered places, and we recline our couches as if everything is okay because I live in a small community where everybody knows my name. No, they are on their way to eternal damnation unless the gospel saves them. We have so much work to do because Satan is going out and deceiving the nations. He is deceiving people, and we are simply sitting content knowing that we have eternal life. God is saying, get out there and preach the gospel. I got a good illustration for you about this. Uh, yesterday, we went out to uh, Kenwood. To My girls had a recital uh, for some play that they're going to be involved in. Oh, Little Mermaid. Anyways, um, and then we decided to go out to um, have lunch with my parents who were in town. And then they just got up and left because they're meeting my brother, not because they hated my message. And uh, that, that, would be, that would be earth shattering. But we, we came up to this light and there was a guy on the street corner. He had a sign around his neck that says, no Jesus, no peace. And I'm just watching the cars just going by. And he's got, he's got something in his hand and he's, he's projecting it out and he's and it's, it's loud enough that you can hear him. He's talking about salvation. And you just have cars that are going. I'm looking at some cars and people are taking pictures of him. They're probably going to put him on Facebook, mock him and stuff. And my, one of my girls asked me, well, what is he doing? What is he doing? And we started to have a little conversation about it. And I thought to myself, I bet there's a lot of Christians that would probably come to this intersection and say, man, what are you doing? That's embarrassing. And the Christian was in the car with me with the, some of the girls, and she says, well, if even just one person comes to faith in Christ, it's worth it for that embarrassment. Why are we so concerned about what people think about us? Yeah, you can look at that guy on the street corner and judge him and say, boy, that's so embarrassing. Well, when was the last time you shared Jesus with someone? 
When was the last time we loved someone enough to say, you know what, you are on your way to eternal damnation and hell, but Jesus can save your soul. We are so concerned about what everybody else is doing, yet I do not realize that my heart is not aligned with the will of God. The lost are all around you. You're going to meet them this afternoon. You're going to meet them this evening. You're going to see them when you step into work. Jesus is the answer for their hearts. We got to get on his team. And I find it interesting how Jesus closes out in verse 12. I almost wonder why Jesus put this in the passage. He says in verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I'm thinking to myself, whoa, Jesus, you know, you are kind of harsh on them. You know, you had them on the spiritual high. You were talking about bearing fruit, and that was great, and that they're going to have love and joy, and then all of a sudden you told them that they're going to be persecuted, and now you're telling them that you have more things to say to them, but they cannot hear them, bear them now. The disciples were overcome with so much sorrow that any further teaching of truth would be lost on them. I, I think if I was one of the disciples, I would have been absolutely lost. I would have been thinking, this is, this is what's going to happen to me in the future. And Jesus, and I think there's much compassion here. He says, I have so much more to tell you, but you just simply cannot bear it now. Here's what I want to close with this thought. Do you ever wonder why God withholds certain details from your life? How many of you have ever wondered that? You're like, Lord, I just, I don't get it. You, there's, there's, there's a lack of information Sometimes God withholds certain details from your life when you're going through things. There's some things that we simply on this side of eternity will just not have the answers to. We have to come to grips with that. And you know what I think God's answer is? God withholds details because He knows that we cannot handle it. You know, if we were to find out how we were going to pass away one day, and we knew that right now, we wouldn't be able to handle it. We would be terrified. We would be scared. Some of the other things that may happen in the future that we have no control of, God withholds those details. Why? Because we simply may not be able to handle it. He has compassion on the disciples and He tells them, guys, I told you enough. I've told you that the Holy Spirit is going to come, empower you, help you, convict you. I have more to tell you, but you just cannot bear it right now. And you almost have to think the disciples were saying, Lord, thank you. We, we, we just can't handle this information. But I love the fact that even with Jesus leaving, He promises them a helper. He promises every one of us a helper. The Holy Spirit is going to teach us. The Holy Spirit is going to convict us of our sin. The Holy Spirit's job is to teach us truth. The Holy Spirit is going to show us how to be properly aligned with the will of God. The question is, am I willing to submit my will to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Let's bow for a word of prayer as we go into our time of communion. Father in heaven, Lord, we again examine our hearts. Uh, Lord, we know that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are going to be absolutely lost. Father, thank you that you are such a loving God that you just simply just don't leave us here on this earth to do it on our own power, but you continue to fulfill your mission through us, through your Spirit. 
And Father, I pray that every single day when we rise, when we go back to bed, that we would always examine our hearts to see if we were being led by our own flesh or being led by the Spirit of God. Father, help us not to be complacent in the truth of knowing your word, studying your word, reading your word, for it is your word that you have given to us to make sure that we are walking in your footsteps. So, Father, I pray that you would convict our hearts this day, even as we leave this place, that you would give us the assurance that we are children of God. And, Father, I pray that as we partake of communion at this time where we remember what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago, through the cross, through the resurrection, that we would be reminded of our sin. We would be reminded that there was a Savior that paid the penalty for that sin. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts just in these few moments that we have as we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.